When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Hey, Phil. Hey, Jen. Thanks for joining me. Hey, how's it going? Good. I'm sure people will be glad that you're back. Always have good response to these episodes. Yeah. yeah it's very, very good to be back. Yeah. It's, it's been always- so long. <laughs> I know. Oh, uh, COVID. I, I understand we're all fully vaccinated or in in Tracy's case, she's like less than a week away from being considered. Yeah, I have both shots. And so this coming Tuesday is going to be yeah, two so weeks. One day soon, perhaps we can get together and do this thing in person. We talked a little bit about the vaccinations before I started recording, but we decided to go ahead and start with Ted Cruz who has something to say about women in the military. So I don't know if you guys saw his latest tweet. I think, Phil, you were sort of like, wait, what? What?" Right. I have not. I'm very curious now. I actually had seen it before, but apparently he's at it again. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't him that posted it before, but somebody did because I had seen the video before. So it's this very, very hyped up masculine military, you know, testosterone imagery of Russian military guys, like just doing military things. And then there's this cartoon that is uh, like an animated section where it shows this little girl and she's at this protest and it's a love is love thing. And she's talking a little bit about her family and how her, her parents are two moms. And so she was raised by two moms and she went to the protest and fought for their freedom. And then eventually they were allowed to marry. And then she grew up and she joined the military and her message is, I feel like I've been fighting for freedom all my life. And apparently that's, problematic for Ted Cruz to have a woman who's fighting for freedom, who is now in the military and continuing that fight for people's freedom, because it's not the testosterone military imagery of the Russian propaganda part. He's also tweeted that this is his tweet. Under Biden, the military is launching political attacks to intimidate Tucker Carlson and other civilians who criticize their policy decisions. Officials in uniform are being used for the campaign. I've demanded a meeting with the commandant of the USMC to put a stop to it. So, yeah, I'm sure that the commandant of the Marine Corps is not amused by Ted Cruz and his bullshit. And we have to remember that, you know, this from the senator who supported a president who wanted his own military parade a la North Korea, that he thinks Biden is 
utilizing the military for, you know, performative purposes and didn't, uh, he had some folks in uniform, military uniform go when they cleared that square of protesters, violently cleared the square so that they could do the photo op where he held up the Bible backwards and upside down for the photo op. Yeah, they, he had actually abused the D.C. National Guard for that. The D.C. National Guard is not, they don't exist for that purpose. Yeah, and I remember some of them came out and said that they regretted the decision to be a, participate in that in their military uniforms. Some of the aircraft they were using, they were making aggressive maneuvers toward protesters, hovering low, a helicopter flying pretty low over civilians. There's a lot of like rotor wash that can blast rocks and debris at the civilians. It's already very intimidating to do that. And to know that they're doing this on purpose, you know, it's even more intimidating. The D.C. National Guard did not cover themselves in glory that day, but most of us recognize that they were being used for political purposes. Ted Cruz and that slice of the Republican Party that's coming up now are very performative and selective about who they support and when they support them. So they're very happy to support police, for example, when they're being abusive and racist. They're not as quick to support them when they're defending the Capitol against an assault by their base. Right. They're quick to say support the troops, but they're not so quick to support the troops when it's a woman who says, I am there to fight for everyone's freedom. Well, and and let's keep in mind that this is Ted Cruz who fled to Mexico when things got a little cold in Texas. And in the midst of all that, he claimed that he was just trying to be a good dad. And my response to that is, no, you weren't being a good dad. You were teaching your children that when things get a little rough, it's okay to use your wealth and privilege to get yourself out of a situation rather than given the fact that he's a public servant. I almost can say, if you have the resources to get your family out of a bad situation, I can totally understand that. But when it's your job to represent the people of the state, that's a little different. You've signed on for a different game there. Right. Never mind that his family was at no time at risk of dying from carbon monoxide poisoning because they had no choice you know, use a dangerous method of heating their house. Well, and you could send your family out of there. You could say, look, it was my decision to run for office. I'm the public servant. You all don't need to stay here and deal with this, but I do. Like, I can't go. I mean, there's nothing that says that you can't send your kids somewhere and still stay and help other people's kids. Right. Not try to just come back and pose for a photo op of handing out something from the trunk of a car or something far after the fact, just to get that one picture and just kind of go on to try to save face, which, as Tracy was talking about earlier, it seemed it seemed so calculated and performative just to get this photo op to say, like, oh, yes, I'm here. I'm, I'm doing something. I'm helping out in the effort. But it was like all this time. It's like it's so much time has passed. And now you're back trying to hand out something. And even that was a question of how authentic that, you know, that handout was where he was putting something like water or something into someone's trunk. You know, I don't begrudge that volunteering. I did that myself after the winter storm came in. I volunteered several times here in San Antonio to hand out water because people were with busted pipes. And those pipes were busted for a while as people were trying to go through the motions, trying to see what they could do about it. But for Ted Cruz to 
you know, jet out very quickly, then get called out very quickly. It was almost like they were in this huge defense mode. So, you know, he had to come back quick, fast and in a hurry and do something to show that he actually cared about his constituents versus actually sending his family off, you know, even if it was to keep them safe or whatever, because they didn't sign up for this. He did. But to actually fight to say, okay, what's happening with our electricity? You know, why is our infrastructure failing at this point? What can we do to make it better? I haven't heard those burning questions, you know, really be answered by him. It was just kind of get back. So you're doing something and hope that it doesn't hurt him politically, at least with his base that loves him. The rest of people, I'm not sure he he really cares about. It's just making sure that he can get voted in. And that's about all. So the bare minimum. It is really weird when I think about the small government Republicans, because what they're basically saying is elect me to government, pay me to be in government, and I will advocate for me not doing anything. Right. (laughs) They're like allergic to government and they'll do everything they can to avoid doing any of it. The last 120 days, we've discovered what confidence in government looks like again. When you have the House and the Senate and the president who are actually doing stuff for people, it's not just for a small percentage of wealthy people or corporations that are benefiting. It's the most vulnerable people who are getting aid. Yeah. And and as opposed to getting attacked. Right. Right. And this is what I always put whenever I see any anybody on the on my represent any of my representatives, because unlike you, Jen, I don't have. I don't always have, I don't have good representatives. You have at least one that is pretty good. Mine are not. I'm in the position to where, you know, John Cornyn is like looking good to me because Ted Cruz is my other Senator. So I, you know, I'm, I'm in a pity me. Right. So (laughs) I have these threads that are horrendous. And then I'm seeing, you know, Dan Patrick and I don't see Greg Abbott's feed that much, but Whenever I see the military stuff, you know, support the troops or today's, you know, military, some kind of military holidays, I will always post and say, does that include trans troops? Yeah. Are are we supporting those troops too? Or you still want them kicked out? And what what are you saying? You don't really support the troops. Right. Just the big brawny, heterosexual, white, male Christian ones. Who defend your Christian rights, but you don't care about anybody else's rights. You don't care about anybody else's freedoms. Because those are the freedoms you want to strip because you're not about freedom. You're about your own freedom. And along those lines, did you hear about the Space Force Lieutenant Colonel who was relieved of his command? Yes, I hear that. Yeah, he's basically claiming that, you know, the military's confessed with Marxists or something like that. He's down on the 1619 Project, right? That's his beef. And for those who don't know, 1619 is a new history program that has come out that no longer hides the ugly side of our history, right? So it just lays bare the reality of racism in this country. And I think a lot of folks don't understand how entrenched it has been historically. I remember hearing about this one lawsuit when I was taking this course online, and I've, I've posted the course link in my description in a few episodes, Race and Cultural Diversity in America. It's offered by University of Illinois, and it's for free on Coursera. I recommend people give it a listen. 
one of the things that stunned me was a lawsuit where somebody was suing in order to gain citizenship because they weren't white, but they weren't suing saying I should be allowed to be a citizen, even though I'm not white. They were suing to say I'm white because they were Indian from India and claiming Aryan descent. So basically their argument was I should be considered white and therefore I should be allowed to be a citizen. That is how bad it was that literally to make an argument that you want to be a citizen, you first had to make an argument that you were white. There's a lot of really interesting cases. So for example, it used to be that race-based slavery was saying that if your father was a free man, then you were born in that state, whatever state your father was, not state like the states, but the state of freedom versus slavery. Then there was a woman who sued and she won the lawsuit because her father was a free man and her mother was enslaved. And so she gained her freedom via this lawsuit. And after that, all the laws changed to say you you have the state of your mother. They were originally going with biblical based slavery laws if your father's a free man, you're a free man. But when they saw how that worked against them, they couldn't breed their own slaves basically by raping the women that were enslaved by them. Then they decided, oh, well, we need to fix this law so that our we can enslave our own children and breed more slaves. And if we're free, we, we get to keep the children as property. Mm-hmm. So the 1619 Project talks about a lot of the history, I don't know that it takes on like these types of things, but these are the types of things that I learned as I was trying to educate myself a little bit more that kind of were surprising to me, things I didn't know. One of my friends posted an article saying, well, there's these concerns about the 1619 Project. And so I read the article and the concerns about it. And literally the entire article was pretty much glowing about the 1619 Project and what a good project it was and the way the history was really, you know, should be taught the way that 1619 is trying to teach it. The problem was that it was stressing slavery as a specific point in one area. And the author was saying they may be overstressing this a bit in this particular case. It turns out that the author of the 1619 project agreed with that and was saying, well, we're going to revise that and downplay that a little bit in the next iteration of this. It is completely normal to do updates and revisions and changes and corrections to even a history book, a math book, any textbook, social studies, anything. You can do those types of revisions. It's not abnormal. That's why you'll have B printings, C printings, D printings of a textbook. He also said the author that was, you know, that they were saying, oh, this is critical of, of 1619. He also acknowledged that what is taught in 1619, even with his concerns, is better than what we're teaching now. So it overall is a good project. But what got me about this particular, with the Space Force guy, is that he was upset because he was saying that in the 1619 project, they say that racism was codified into the nation from the inception of the Constitution. The Constitution was ratified after arguments that made clear that it needed to include provisions that allowed for race-based slavery. I don't understand how much more white supremacists you can get than saying, if we're going to start this nation, we need to make sure that our documents will allow us to enslave Black people as white people. If that's what your founding document is including... I don't understand how somebody could say 
they're offended that this project teaches that the Constitution codified white supremacy into the foundation of the nation. Because if that's not white supremacy, I don't know what would be. Not only that, but the major cash crop that allowed the United States as an infant nation to basically become this economic powerhouse, the cash crop that did that was cotton. And cotton was produced by slaves. And there's no other way of slicing that up. Anyone who was involved in cotton on any level, whether that was the textile producers in the UK, consumers around the world, everyone had their hands in slavery because that's how those things were produced. That's how that wealth was produced. If your state's economy, I mean, as states were at that time, if, if that's your main driver, then of course, you're, if you're planning to make this nation and you know, ratifying the Constitution, you're going to fight for the preservation of that economy that's brought you to this point in the first place. It's a logical step that they would take in the first place. It, just, it doesn't make sense to say that, oh, no, it wasn't there or it wasn't present. Like, there's no way it couldn't have been because that was the way of life. That was the the way that they saw the only path forward, at least those white folks that were right there in power making the decisions regarding this document. It's amazing to think how much of that type of language and those issues are kind of put on the back burner or just omitted altogether when you're a lot of that stuff was omitted when I was in history class, like so, so much was downplayed. Slavery was there, but it was nowhere near the degree that it should be. And that's why I did appreciate a lot of aspects of the 1619 Project for really, for really trying to play that up and actually tell that story as it should have been, because it is our history versus a lot of the whitewashed history that we do get nowadays. It still continues to be whitewashed, or at least wanting to be whitewashed by those in power, the Texas State Board of Education, like, oh boy, that's just been so, so much that's been done over so long regarding our textbooks. But it's amazing that people cringe at the idea of having to learn a deeper part about the history of this nation. You know, we weren't just the deciding city on the hill, that type of thing. It wasn't this huge glowing thing. There were these darker sides that play a role in the way our current society is set up now. A lot of those effects that happened way back then, 400 some odd years ago, still have an effect on people's lives today. Those lingering effects, Jim Crow, et cetera, like you have these long standing histories there that stem from that original foundation. And so many kids are growing up and not being taught about this foundational piece that has led over time to a lot of the injustices that we still see to this present day. You were on Captain Hunter's podcast with me, Phil, and I had him on and we talked a little bit about the history of policing and how it evolved from night watchmen in the North and slave posses in the South it came together to create modern day policing. And so in the North, you had mostly a classist system where you had night watch that was there to protect the property of wealthy people, basically. And then you had slave posses in the South that were there to go after people who were enslaved who ran away and tried to gain their freedom. And this is what policing came out of. And they don't teach that. And that's one thing he wants to change is to be able to teach that to cadets so that they understand uh, the the history and the framing 
and the narrative and the context of what it is they're doing and why there are these disparate attitudes about them, why they're going to be appreciated and loved in some communities. And then other communities are going to be wary and less likely to see them in a friendly light. Uh, Less willing to, if they go up and ask someone a question, less willing to actually divulge information, whether they know it or not. And that, you know, mistrust that comes and people come up, I've seen online and things like the, oh, if you have anything to hide, you shouldn't have any concern about saying anything, but it's like, no, you know, that's not the idea. There's a lot of history that's there that makes people cautious about what that interaction might turn into, you know, what might happen if you incriminate yourself or other, like there's so many things that you're mistrustful of that it, one of the best defenses is to not say anything at all. I don't know anything for a lot of folks. That's a reasonable position, but onlookers will look at that and say, well, you know, you, you have something to hide. So, you know, you essentially deserve what may happen to you for your non-cooperation after that fact, being fully cognizant of that history that's there and how that affects the way that people view this interaction from a person of color's viewpoint. It may be a whole different ball of wax than this onlooker that's looking at the situation from the view of a cell phone camera or a police camera, if there's even that available. When I re- learned history, I remember learning about women's right to vote, for example, this part of the history that's taught about, like you said, these great ideals, the shining city on the hill and freedom and equity and equality and like justice under the law for everyone, no matter how much money and you know, blind justice holding the scales. And so there's all this great pumping up of these fantastic ideas about how everybody's equal. And then you start getting into you know more of the history and then you have these modules, right? So you'll have this basically what amounts to a white male Western history. And then you'll have a module about something bad that happened to Native Americans. And, you know, this thing happened back to the white, the white male history, Western history. And then here's this thing that happened to black people. And, you know, there was this slavery thing and, and uh, that's that module back to the Western, you know, European white male history. You get back to that and it's like, Oh, and then, and then there was this struggle where women wanted to vote and then they, you know, got the vote and now back to the, you know, go back. And so there's all these little modules where it's like, well, we'll include you women and we'll include you black people. We'll include you native Americans, like just in these little sideline things, not as part of an integrated history that we all lived, right? We all lived and we all shaped. But what that did to me in my head was it made it almost seem like the people that were oppressing me or oppressing women in this country were people who were involved in that immediate struggle during suffragette times. What it didn't really do was connect that to the fact that the founders intended me to not be able to vote. All those wonderful ideas about equality and equity and freedom were never intended for me. Never. Right. It was purely by violence that women demanded their rights because they were never endowed with them according to our founders. This is the part we have to get to. It's not just about some people wanted to deny me my rights. It's that my rights were denied and codified as denied in the inception of the nation. It was intentional. I was not supposed to be able to vote. I was not supposed to represent. I was supposed to count as a person and people who were black were supposed to count as part of a person so that the white people, the white men who were voting 
and we're representing had more power. They got to count us as part of the constituency, but we didn't get to hold power and we didn't get to vote. And then they would call that representation. That's our representation is that we count toward a white man's power. And we still see the legacy of that in the current abortion laws that are being passed in Mississippi and Texas. Yeah, we had a real doozy here in Texas, in fact. The heartbeat law, six weeks or so. A lot of women don't even know they're pregnant at that point. So by the time most women learn that they are pregnant, it's already too late to get an abortion, which is a de facto ban on abortion. You basically would have to be prepared to do something to stop a pregnancy, a potential pregnancy, every month if you're sexually active and there's even the remotest chance you could be pregnant. You would have to have plan B or some kind of medical abortion agent on standby and take it every month in order to avoid running afoul of Texas abortion law. Yeah, and the same people who pass that law will never allow that. No, they won't. They've made it. Um, incredibly difficult to get a medical abortion. You know, even though that's safer than taking Tylenol, it's still incredibly difficult because otherwise you'd have a lot of underserved communities across the state who could access abortion services easily and cheaply through telemedicine and a local pharmacy. They can't do that because the way the laws in Texas are written, you got to go in and physically see the doctor who's prescribing your medical abortion medication. And that doctor has to have hospital privileges at a local hospital, even though you might live a hundred miles away. And then you got to wait a certain period of time and then come back and then you can get your medication for your abortion. And for people who are thinking, but wait a minute, this has already been tried and failed. So what's the worry? Well, it hasn't been tried with the latest SCOTUS. That's that's the worry. Yeah, the worry is Amy Coathanger Barrett, who was installed on the Supreme Court after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, she actually helped write the Mississippi law that's coming before the Supreme Court this fall. Yeah, and And Clarence Thomas is on the record saying Roe v. Wade was a mistake. Oh, yeah, he's been keen for a while for something to go up there. And that's almost what these bills seem like they're tailor-made to be challenged. That's exactly what's happening. These laws, they they never pushed this too much when, you know, we had a majority on the court that would basically not even hear these cases. We would basically uphold a lower court's dismissal of these laws as unconstitutional. Now, the Supreme Court will hear these cases and the majority is likely to rule against reproductive rights. And so we're going to see in our lifetime, I mean, basically, it's what uh, Beth Presswood had posted on Facebook as soon as Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and that became known, she's like, Rose dead, Rose gone, because they're going to strike it down. Here's what can happen, though, is they can legislate. Yes, they can. And that's the only thing that could change this is if Congress passes a law, and of course we can, we can get it through the Senate, that, that says, you know, abortion is a constitutional right, you know, and you can't, you know, you can't restrict it. But that's a very difficult challenge right now. 2022 is going to be an important year. 
Yeah, for this bill uh, here in Texas, it's like, I was just reading this from the Texas Tribune, but it says like the bill doesn't specify a time frame, but would ban abortions after a fetal heart heartbeat can be detected, which proponents say can be as early as six weeks. And the measure would be enforced by private citizens empowered to sue abortion providers and others who help someone get an abortion after six weeks, even, for example, by driving them to an abortion clinic. It's absolutely ludicrous. And of course, it's going to be challenged very quickly. I can't imagine that it will not. Then we're in a waiting game. It's one of those things. It's like things like this were supposed to be, you know, at least settled or maybe even getting better. But here you are sitting in this state where you're like, my goodness, what's going to happen? Is this actually going to get stricken down by the court? Are they actually going to do this? That majority is there on the court. And so now there's this huge open question. And it, I, I just I can't imagine how badly this could go. You know, if they actually strike it down, what ramifications would that have across the nation? It's just the very same people who are actively restricting a woman's ability to exercise control over her own body, her whole her own life. They are the same group of people who are saying, no, Texans don't need the extra three hundred dollars a month in unemployment insurance from the COVID relief bill because Texas employers need low-wage workers to come in and take these jobs. So they're basically trying to manipulate the unemployment rate by depriving people of resources that they desperately need. They're not going out there saying, okay, we're going to provide for free prenatal care for any pregnant Texan. We're going to provide free prenatal care for any Texan under five. We're going to provide free child care you know, they're not doing any of those things that would actually help people either avoid slipping into poverty or lift them out of poverty by allowing the parents to continue to work. They're not doing any of that stuff. They're just restricting women's ability to control uh, what happens to their bodies. If people who can get pregnant, because it's not necessarily just women involved here, but if you're able to get pregnant, the men in Texas, or at least the, the benighted white men, don't want you to have any control over what happens to you. But they'll easily tout that out for freedom of choice and everything else when it comes to masks or any other, you know, so many different varieties right. of subjects, except yes. for the ones that we disagree with. Then no, no, you can't. A piece of cloth over your face is too big an imposition, but carrying a child for nine months and giving birth to that child is no big deal. They actually gaslight people by using the my body, my choice. I, I've heard the anti-maskers oh, yeah, use yeah. the slogan. And the one I love are the, the ones that say, oh, you know, I refuse to live in fear as their justification for not wearing a mask. These are the same jackasses that need a, an M16 or an AR-15 to go to HEB. And like, what, what a segue into constitutional carry. So here in Texas, we've got a thing. (laughs) There's a thing. Of course. (laughs) A thing in the world here that's called constitutional carry. And it's the brilliant idea that the Constitution will be your permit. No regulations. It's just your right to own your gun and have, have fun. It was getting a lot of airplay, let's say, on Ted Cruz's Facebook feed. So there were a lot of constituents who were slamming Cruz's feed, who were going after all the Texas uh, representatives in my district. 
and posting and saying, pass constitutional carry. We want constitutional carry. You know, and, and I, my response to that on the threads is always, if only you were as zealous about voting rights as you are gun rights. If only you felt that you, we, well, should we have constitutional voting where you just come in and vote and we don't, there's no restrictions and you know, the constitution is all I need. Walk in with a copy of the constitution and throw your vote. Which is interesting because we also got some you know, restrictive voting laws passed, including some voting laws that were you know, referenced purity of the ballot, which were like blatant racist dog whistles. They, they're all about this purity of the ballot. But, you know, when I voted in November, I voted in person early. I went into the polling place wearing a mask. I showed my state-issued ID. Previously, you could just walk in and show your voter registration card. You didn't need a photo ID. You know, when I first started voting in Texas, there was no requirement right. for a photo ID. You just showed your voter registration card. And, in fact, if you didn't have that voter registration card, if you voted with your, your driver's license, you had to sign a statement saying that you were voting with your driver's license because you didn't bring your voter ID. So that was the voter ID was actually the preferred ID. So I still I, bring I still bring my registration with me. I showed him my driver's license, and no one asked me to lower my mask to prove that I was the person in that picture. So that tells me right there that this was all theater. This has nothing to do with securing the vote and making sure only registered voters vote or anything. I didn't show a voter ID card. I just showed a driver's license and they didn't verify my identity by asking me to lower my mask. And this is the brainchild of Briscoe Kane, who is the guy who decided to include purity of the ballot. Anytime you hear purity right there, if red flags don't go up, you need to read more. You need to look at more history because the the term purity is almost never associated. If you're not talking about drinking water, it's never associated with anything good. It's usually about genocide, eugenics. It's tied to all kinds of racist things. It's it's just a word that needs to, to prick your ears up when you hear it. So he decides to go with purity of the ballot because that's in the Texas Constitution. And he has no idea what it means or how it's in the constitution or why. And just like we were talking about before, when people don't understand the racist origins of particular things, they end up going out and hotly defending things that are racist. And this is what he did. And so he got called out. He was told that this was racist. He says he didn't know. They did strike the language, but they didn't strike the rest of it which basically he was saying, this is what these rules are intended to do is to ensure the purity of the ballot box. It's like, well, that purity of the ballot box means the white vote, protecting the white vote against the black vote being integrated into it. And what you're literally saying is you're going to strike the wording, but you're not going to change the legislation that you've already said is all about this theme of purity of the ballot, that you're doing these things to enforce what's in the Constitution, but what's in the Constitution is totally racist. And this is a guy, he's an attorney. We could accept his claim that he didn't realize the racist origins of that whole purity language in the Constitution. We could, but as I like to say, I was born at night, but not last night. So I don't believe his claim that he didn't know. 
Well, he got grilled. He got grilled as well on did he does he not believe that when the Texas elections folks are saying that this was a secure election, does he not believe it? And he acknowledged that he did that. Yes, he agrees. This was a secure election in Texas. Like, Then what the hell is this? Right. What is the actual purpose? If you're not pointing out to circumstances, okay, you know, we have this particular instance happened because we have this whole our analysis of this says that if we change this particular rule or law that we should be able to plug this hole so that this fraud can't happen again. But it's not the purpose of it. And so some of those provisions are like restricting early voting rules and schedules, doing away with extended hours, for example, banning drive through voting, uh, requiring large counties to redistribute polling places that could move sites potentially away from areas with more Hispanic or black residents. And this, this is coming from the Texas Tribune, one of their takes on it. But all of these effects have demonstrable effects for folks of color, like the having the early voting restricted and the extended hours restricted. You have people that can't get off of work, for right. example. You have people that even when they get off, well, they have to take a bus to get mm-hmm. to the polling location in the first place, which is going to take time, let alone a bus to get back. You have all of these circumstances where you're hitting the working class, people that don't have don't have a car. They don't have job flexibility to be able to take off of work, you know, for a whole day or whatever else to go down to their one of the closest polling locations in order to vote and then get back. People have children that they may not have people to be able to watch. For example, they like there's so many circumstances that restrict people already. And this legislation comes in and say, we're going to make it worse. But for this particular slice of people, like this was a targeted effort for very specific people, because if someone is in a white collar job, have their own transportation and have the job flexibility, which a lot of people, uh, you know, in white collar jobs may have, whether it be PTO or just the flexibility to ask their boss, hey, can I take off for their day? And they say yes to go do that. They are not affected. To me, that seems to be the whole point in the first place. Right. Like for the people that they want to vote, we want more of you. But for those that we do not, poor working class people of color, et cetera, we want that slice to vote less. And that's what this legislation is really trying to target. And it is a disgusting continuation of these laws that not just in Texas, you know, there's other states around the country that are going to be doing it as democratic populations creep up in these states you're going to have more and more of this georgia i expect to see much more of that coming down the pike you know that was a pivotal thing in this last election and so what are we going to see well we're going to see a lot more of this rhetoric of securing the ballot securing the vote and what that means is for the folks in power uh, typically republicans we want to secure our positions in power and to hell with what the actual residents want. We want to maintain our grip on power, and this is the way to do it under the guise of securing this vote, even though we can't point to circumstances and specific instances of actual confirmed fraud, we're still going to do it because we have to get that integrity. The purity must be preserved of this vote. And by the purity being preserved, it points to their power and the current power structure that they're occupying, that they do not want to change and to hell with what the actual residents of their jurisdictions want. Yeah. So in, in short, the Republicans are all about having the most fearful 
part of the population have an unfettered right to carry whatever weapons they want to strap to themselves with no permit or licensing requirements at all. And they want the most disadvantaged groups of the population to not even have the right to vote in a free and fair election. Great system of government they've uh, invented here. I referred to Briscoe Kane as a, a little racist piece of shit, and I stand by that assessment. He absolutely knew what he was doing. That was a pretty blatant signal to his constituents, his very white constituents, that he had their back. I'm completely unmoved by his pretending to be ignorant of Texas history on how that language got in the Constitution. Yeah, they often will throw out a dog whistle and then quickly pull it back like, oh, I didn't know. But it's, you know, the the whistle's already out there. It's like you've already said it out loud. Yeah, he knew. Yeah. These things didn't come out of thin air. These things have been planned. This legislation has been written in such a way like it is very purposeful. All of this BS, like I'm not here for all the gaslighting and, oh, it's for integrity and to make the American people feel secure. And it's like, no, all of that is bull and you effing know it. And I would respect you a hell of a lot more if you just said that straight out. Hey, we're trying to protect this. But, you know, that would be uncouth. That that would be a little too obvious. That's a well, little too much. It would be illegal, right? So that they can't yeah. legally do that. If they could do it legally, they would. Mm-hmm. And they almost can do it legally because the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. A few years ago, this would have been enough to trigger a review of these voting rights laws because it was assumed that if you were in a Southern state that had a history of restricting voting rights for certain demographics, that you needed to get preclearance in order to implement any kind of new voting requirements. Even with the gerrymandering, they got around that in some lawsuits by saying that they were restricting Democrat votes, not Black votes. And since political affiliation is not a protected class, you can discriminate on people based on political affiliation. It was almost like the literacy laws, right? Where it was just like, we're not trying to restrict Black people from voting. We are restricting illiterate people from voting and just not educating our Black citizens. You know, it's just a coincidence that they're Black and illiterate, you know, speed forward into today. It's just a coincidence that they're Democrat and Black. It's not that we're really trying to restrict the Black votes. We're just restricting the areas of our city that are Democrat and Black. And, you know, the other gaslighting bullshit that they do is that, oh, well, those Black people just don't know what's good for them because if they did, they'd vote Republican. I wish I could say that I didn't see any of that on the left, but I did this time around. Yeah. It it was really ugly um, to hear people saying, uh, what do they call it? Low information voter and pointing at black voters. Yes. Referring to South Carolina voters who were in a democratic primary, who were overwhelmingly black. Anyway, we we won't go down that path. Yeah. I want to read this last quote by this is representative uh, Jasmine Crockett. Uh, She's a Democrat out of Dallas. And she had this to say on this particular bill that, quote, let me tell you what suppression looks like. It looks like firing back at Harris County Judge Linda Hidalgo and former county clerk Chris Hollins, who braved the increased access to the ballot box for all. And instead of applauding them for assisting and increasing the participation of Texans in the process, we filed this bill. 
Suppression looks like black, brown, and disabled people telling you to your face that this policy will affect them in a negative way and allowing them to fall on deaf ears. And that's exactly what you see as this legislation continues to barrel its way through the Republican-led Texas House, Senate, and I'm sure eventually to the governor's office, because for 2022, they can't risk Democrats or losing their power uh, as Republicans in some form or fashion. But uh, I'll end it with that. That is a really good segue, the marginalized folks being disenfranchised to the Austin camping ban, which has morphed into a statewide camping ban that restricts Austin from even being able to provide camping spaces in public parks. Yeah, we were talking about this over dinner tonight. I've heard the the, uh, summaries of the bill. I actually need to read this legislation for myself because if it's anything like the whole marriage equality ban that Texas passed, you know, many years ago that got struck down by the Supreme Court. It could be that they banned camping in Texas, not just camping by the homeless people, but camping, period. So I actually need to read this legislation to find out. I would not put it past our um, stalwart Republican uh, representatives in the Texas ledge to have just banned camping here. Yeah, this legislation, like it caused a lot of apprehension to pass a ban or pass any legislation that doesn't have any method of actually fixing the issue, which is the lack of affordable housing, the lack of permanent supportive housing, rapid rehousing, the space where people that are currently experiencing homelessness can then escape that life for a longer period of time, which those larger programs provide, like permanent supportive housing vis-a-vis places like Community First that provides actual homes, tiny homes, stuff like that, a village that they have built, a master plan village that they're working on, along with Foundation Communities, who also provides that same type of service. But the ban was passed and you know pushed by people that had a lot of interest in play. They raised a lot of money to do this effort. It's just like, how many, how many tiny homes could we have built with that amount of money? Like how how much infrastructure can we have done with the money just to say that, oh, you can't be here and we're going to find you and cite you if you're in these particular locations. It targets the locations that are the central to the downtown area. And that was a lot of the proponents that were pushing it. They may have not been on the face of it, but that's a lot of where that push came from. Those downtown owners, businesses, et cetera, that are there by 6th Street, 7th Street, because there's a large encampment there under the I-35 bridge at between 6th Street and 8th Street. It's a heartless thing. And we go out, my group, Austin Atheist Helping the Homeless, goes out every month, first Sunday of every month, period. So when we went out, of course, news of the passage of the ban the day before, that was on May 5th, I believe, was already present out there. It was heartbreaking for us to get these questions from the people that we see month after month. We got questions of, you know, like, where are we supposed to go? How long do we have? Are they going to take my stuff away? People wanting to find out more information about what their lives are going to be after this is passed and actually gone into its enforcement stage. People were distraught. You know, it's just people wondering, like, what are they supposed to do? 
when they didn't have a reasonable prospect of being able to get a housing assignment in time, because there's people out there that have been waiting for years for housing assignments. We'll be going out there in the first Sunday in June with some information. We intend to have pamphlets and stuff like that to give folks out there an idea of the timeline that we're getting from the city of Austin, how this is actually going to be enforced to give them at least an idea. But so many services are right there in the middle of downtown. Caritas of Austin is right there. The Austin Resource Center for the Homeless is right there in downtown. There's so many groups, nonprofit groups, community groups like my own that go down there under the I-35 bridge at 6th Street to hand out items, things that can help people get by as they're waiting on their caseworkers to be assigned a caseworker. And if they have a caseworker to be assigned a housing assignment, there's these long lines that are in place from your initial state of homelessness to getting to a point to where you can get a housing assignment and get a more permanent housing situation for yourself. It's a long process. It can take years. It can really take years. And here comes along this ban that just says you can't be there. It doesn't provide any infrastructure. It doesn't provide funding to do anything about it. It doesn't do any of that, but just says these folks cannot be here. They must shift. And it's like, well, where? And even if you do that, then what? What are you going to do now if you don't have a plan to do so? So people are scrambling and it's, it is a ridiculous situation could have been done so much differently and even this money that was raised, as I mentioned before, that could have been put towards any number of things in these areas, let alone tiny homes, something that you can build for $10,000 or $12,000 or so, the small, tiny homes that are in the community first village. And it's just like, how many people could you have housed on a permanent, uh, as a permanent supportive housing type of placement with that money that you raised just to get them out of your sight line? That's what pissed me off probably the most. And and the thing that that really struck me about this, you know, watching the news reports of this fundraising effort, it was that the the people raising money for this were casting this as if the homeless people were some kind of existential threat to Mm -hmm. Austin. It's like, no, they're just people who don't have a place to live right now. and, And you could like show a little compassion and treat them like human beings. And like you said, direct this money toward actually solving the problem instead of just demonizing a group of people who most of us don't ever envision ourselves being in that situation. But the reality is that no one is immune. You can't look into the future and say, that will never be me. People really, really try to separate themselves and their mind from those that they see out on the street. When in reality, so many people, so many families are one one large expense away or even one missed paycheck away, right. maybe two from being housing insecure. Like right now they feel, people feel very secure with them. So they may have to worry about, you know, bills here and there, but people insulate themselves from, well, you know, well, being they, out there on the street. They make a moral judgment about someone. They see someone who's homeless and I know that this happens because I, I hate to admit it, but I've done this before. You know, I've looked down at people who are panhandling or who are homeless and think, what did they do to get themselves into this situation? And we do that. We make moral judgments about people who are homeless. And we say, well, they must have, you know, they must be addicted to drugs or they must have, you know, committed crimes or they've done something 
and this is what they get for having done this. And like you said, it might have been just a medical expense that was unanticipated or the car broke down and they could either fix the car and get to their job or pay their rent. Choices that people make in the moment dictate whether they have housing next month or not. Right. And for so many like housing, like once you lose your housing, like it's, it is a heck of a snowball to try to roll back up that hill. Right. Once that ball gets going. And when I saw a lot of the discourse online, I got <laughs> to say I was pissed off at a lot of people. Like that would be an understatement. I'll admit that, which I try not to get that animated too often. But it was just like, you're making all these judgments like, oh, they're addicted to drugs. You know, oh, they're just druggies out there. And it's just like, and like a lot of people equate that to that's what put them there versus they got in that situation from circumstances that may have been far beyond their control, being laid off and not being able to get a job in time. They found themselves living out of their car, living on the street, and they reached the point to where they wanted something to self-medicate, something to make them feel better about the hopelessness around that situation that they were feeling at that time. And so they get a hold of beer or drugs or whatever it may be to serve as a coping mechanism for the experience that they are now living Mm -hmm. on a day-to-day basis. If you take two seconds while you're talking about people in this blanket, broad brush way online, trying to defend your position and actually go down to have a conversation with someone down there and find out if they're willing to talk because nobody owes you a conversation. I'll preface it with that. (laughs) But if somebody's willing to share their story with you as to how they ended up in this situation. Like I have, we see people with medical issues. Like there's people that walk, they had a col, um, was it colostomy bags Yeah, out there like that, that. It's a little thing and people will be holding on to that bag, you know, scared that something's going to happen or something might get infected and you know they'll have to get to a hospital and you know, who knows how the heck they're going to get there. It's so many different things that can go wrong in someone's life to get there. I know I've told the story a long time ago about a young lady, only mid twenties who got laid off living in South Austin and wasn't able to catch up in time enough and get another job to pay her rent. She got evicted and started living out of her car. This is college educated uh, young lady, you know, mid twenties, you know, everything was done right, so to speak, but she had nowhere to go. No family that was close by. Like it was, you know, it was multi-states away everything just started rolling downhill. She was in her car, but she was still applying for jobs, living out of her car, going to the library, et cetera. All the things that you're supposed to do to get a job, because you see that a lot. Well, they just need to get a job. You know, there's jobs out there. She was doing all the things right, making all the applications, and she couldn't do it in time. Her car got towed because the registration sticker uh, went bad because she didn't have the money to renew or get an inspection and everything else. The car got towed away and she was left without her small shelter that she even had at that point. And it's people like to divorce, as we mentioned earlier, people like to divorce themselves from this reality to say, I could never end up like that. You know, if I was in that position, I would just be able to do this. You know, I could do X, Y, Z, but my goodness, if you listen to actual human beings that tell their actual stories about what actually happened to them out there, and there's plenty of folks out there in the Austin area and many other cities around the nation that you can actually speak to to say what you know what is that story about how you get there and you see just how close you are to their living their same reality 
you see just how close, how on the knife's edge that you are. Like you're not, you're nowhere near as sure as you thought you were. I caution people from using broad brush strokes to label this entire group of people to say, essentially, the decision you, you made make you deserving of the life you're currently living. Because the thing is, you don't know their story. You don't know their decisions. You don't know what happened around them to get them to that place. So have empathy, have courage to actually have a conversation and learn more about these people that you're denigrating along the way and not wanting to help and put your efforts into getting folks out of that situation. And this bill that they pushed forward didn't do any of that. In fact, made things so much worse and so uncertain for these folks out here that are actually trying to change their situations as slowly as the system, as the gears in the system turn in the Travis County continuum of care, they're still trying to go through that process. So many people are, and they're having to wait for those slow gears to turn. But that's a problem of the system itself. There's a lot of bottlenecks there. Don't judge. I'm going to get off my soapbox, but that gummit take the time to learn people's situation before you cast such a huge cloud and brush stroke over all of these folks that you see each and every, these human beings that you're seeing living their lives and trying to do their best to make it day by day until they can escape living in a state of homelessness. I'll climb up on my soapbox and talk about medical bills and how fast that can snowball into a problem. And if you are already um, in a more precarious situation, this can this can push you over the edge so fast. It's unbelievable. So I'll, I'll give a personal example here. So some of you guys may know I um, I fell during a run back in December and I, I broke my wrist and it was a bad break. You know, I'm very privileged to have excellent health insurance. So that was not something that was a consideration for me. But keep in mind, I have, I do have really excellent health insurance. And I'm very privileged in that I have a, you know, a good paying job that affords me ample time off and everything. So that was not a consideration. I finally got in to see a doctor and three doctor's appointments later, because, you know, you see the initial GP, who then refers you to the specialist. Well, I got referred to the sports medicine specialist who said, that's a bad break. I'm not touching that. I'm sending you to the hand specialist. It's like, why couldn't we skip that and go right to the hand specialist? So I get to the hand specialist who looks at it and said, yep, you need surgery. And the sooner the better. So this was like a a Tuesday. And so I was scheduled for surgery that Friday. So it's like, okay, great. And he's like, but I need you to get a CT scan. So bear in mind that every time I see one of these specialists, there's a copay. So the the initial doctor I saw, it was in an after-hours clinic. So there's a higher copay for that. And then he referred me to the sports medicine specialist. So that's the higher copay. And then I got referred to the hand specialist, which is also a higher copay. So I've racked up, you know, 150 bucks in copays before I even get to the surgery. And then he's like, yeah, you got to, I need you to get a CT scan and a rapid COVID test. So I go get the rapid COVID test. That's another 40 bucks in addition to what my insurance paid. And I go into the, get the CT scan. That's $200 that I have to pay. So 
we're already racking up bills here. If I were, you know, in a more precarious situation, that's a lot of money I've just shelled out and I haven't even gotten to the surgery yet. So then the day of surgery, I get in there, it costs 1600 bucks to walk in the door. That's my out-of-pocket cost for the surgery. Fortunately, I have the resources to plunk down my credit card and say, yep, here's the 1600 bucks. And so I was able to get the surgery. If I was unable to afford that, you know, broken bones heal. If you don't have them cast or, you know, as long as they're not protruding and mine was not, you know, if it's a closed fracture, everything, it's going to heal. The problem is that it heals with the deformity in place, you know, unless you get the fracture reduced and you have the attendant loss of function. So I could have said, yeah, I don't want surgery and it would have healed. And I would have had a, a deformed wrist with a loss of function. So this is the choice that someone would have to make if they couldn't afford the surgery. And that's a terrible choice. We shouldn't be putting anyone in that situation, you know, regardless of their you know, economic uh, situation or anything. No one should have to make that choice just because they can't pay for surgery. And so I ended up having the surgery. And then, you know, I've had a couple of subsequent bills for like additional stuff after that that were actually pretty minor in comparison to the the upfront costs. But again, this is a lot of money. It was pushing by the by the time everything was all over, it was almost $3,000 out of pocket. And that's with excellent insurance. So you can imagine if somebody didn't have great insurance, what that would have been. Yeah. In fact, I can tell you what happens to somebody that doesn't have great insurance, right? A friend of mine has insurance through the Affordable Care Act exchange, the ACA exchange. They cover the premiums 100% because my friend is not making that much money, has not been able to work. Gave, you know, They took a hit because of COVID and they ran into some health problems. So they started having pain in this rash and they went in and they have shingles. And so they're in horrible pain and they're unable to work because their work is mostly physical. In the meantime, they went in, like did the right thing, went in for like their normal annual checkup, even though they're deductible under the plan that is free to them in the ACA exchange is $8,000. So that means you don't pay anything in premiums, but when you go see a doctor, when you need medication, when you have any kind of need for a service, a medical service, you pay all of that until you pay out $8,000 and then your insurance will kick in. That's what crappy insurance looks like. Well, now he his uh, blood PSA was high and that means a biopsy for cancer screening. And he was talking about it to me and he was saying, the GP, you go in and they say, oh, the PSA, we're gonna, we tested the PSA, this is high. Now we want you to go see the specialist. You go to the urologist. The urologist starts talking about the biopsy and this procedure and that, you know, with them what they have to do. And he's like, they keep telling you what you need to do, but they're not, they're not thinking that you're sitting there thinking, well, wait a minute, how much is this going to cost me? Nobody should have to ask that question. Right. It, nobody that's dealing with somebody telling you, you need to go get screened for cancer should be thinking, can I afford to be screened for cancer? And I mean, what you're describing is sounds like the typical high deductible insurance policy. Yeah. And they sell it as a, oh, hey, your premiums are going to be lower than the other stuff. And you'll put money into this health savings account. And if you have a medical expense, you'll pay it out of that. 
And if you don't use it, you can roll it over every year. It's your money. You know, you can keep it in there. I, I know a lot of younger people who buy into these policies. And if you're young and you're healthy and, you know, everything's going great, it might be a reasonable choice to make. But what people don't consider is that that deductible resets every year, the beginning of the year. So if you paid out $7,999 last year, on January 1st, it resets. You got to pay another $8,000 before your insurance pays a dime. Right. Mm -hmm. I've never um, thought about it. First of all, at my company, the high deductible plan is not enough of a discount for me to consider taking on that kind of risk, you know, versus the kind of platinum insurance policy that I pay into every year. So I just don't do it. But I know a lot of young people in my company who who swear by that. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm actually on the HSA high deductible plan um, at my office, and I have a choice. But when I rolled out my potential risk scenarios, mm -hmm. it actually worked out for even catastrophic stuff to be better for me. So what's interesting to me is what they're calling high deductible at my company is not the $8,000, right? So we're talking under $3,000. So for me, it was worth it. The first few years, it was kind of a gamble, right? Because you say to yourself, if I switch over to this plan and something really bad happens and I don't have anything in that HSA, I am really screwed. So yeah. you have to be prepared to sort of take a gamble the first couple of years with it so that you beef up that HSA. So now that the HSA is where it needs to be, right, where I've got a pretty decent HSA plugged away because I've been on this plan for a few years and not had anything catastrophic, I literally have like years worth of co-pays in that HSA. So if yeah. something happened to me, I could pay off the year. And then when it resets, I could pay off the next year. I could pay off the next because I've built the HSA. Right. But it's a gamble. Right. I mean, yeah. you have to take a big gamble to do that, because if you get hit with something catastrophic in the first few years, you're not going to have that that account to back you up and to cover your expenses. So you're going to be on the hook for all of that, not have that savings put away. Yeah. So the, the other gamble is if you don't choose the high deductible thing with the HSA, you can choose the, you know, a more traditional plan with what they call the flex spending account. And the catch with that is that you need a crystal ball and determine what your medical spend is going to be for the next year. And what you want to do is have exactly the right amount of money in that flex spending account. Or in my company's case, you can go over by like $500 and, and roll $500 over to the next year. Right. But anything more than that, the company takes it. Yeah, you so, lose yeah, it. Yeah, you lose it. You lose it. And so it, it, that's a gamble on, on that end. So for me, though, I feel I, I feel OK because it's like I think yeah. it's something like twenty five hundred, twenty six hundred bucks. And I will never pay anything else. Like once I hit that deductible, they will cover everything. So I know I'll never pay more than that in a year. And, and with co-pays and stuff with um, with the higher premiums, it, it looks like a better plan. But if something horrible happens, it actually starts costing a lot more for the way that our plans are structured. But the real reality is like, for example, I saw this commercial for something called power to the patient. And I went and I looked it up 
And it was all about the truth in pricing, right? Like you should, you should be allowed to see how much things are going to be priced as far as medical care so that you can shop this around and you can make informed decisions. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, none of this is the answer. I don't need to be shopping my medical care. I don't need to be worrying about, do I want the high deductible and take that risk? Or do I want to go with the premium plan? But then if I get something really bad and it goes on for a long time, I'm going to actually spend more. We just really need to have a people be able to go in at the point of service and get service. This mm-hmm. is what it needs to be. None of this other garbage is a solution. It's just a distraction to keep people from saying, we just need to make healthcare available to people. And we, we've seen how this works with the COVID vaccines. You can just go in and get your COVID vaccine and you don't have to pay anything for it. Yep. Insurance or not. Yeah. Cause I remember, I mean, you know, companies pass, I would oscillate between the high deductible and the higher plan, depending on if I plan to go to the doctor that year for things and specifically a prescription that on the higher cost plan costs me four bucks every yeah. three weeks versus the other plan, of course, which is the high deductible where it would run me about 175 for the exact same cost. And I would not hit the deductible threshold over the course of the year. And so I would pile up prescriptions because it doesn't expire like that. I would pile up prescriptions and talk to my doctor about, you know, this is what I'm doing. So I would do it while I'm on the higher cost plan so that I could coast through the cheaper plan for the course of the year and save money and, you know, put it towards everything else while I still had a supply of this, making making it stretch longer because, you know, at least it it wasn't something that was it's life-threatening. For me, so I can make it stretch a little longer, make something that's supposed to last maybe two weeks, go for a month and a half, something like that, and make it stretch out the entire course of that year. But that was a calculus I had to make based on what was available funding wise. You know, it's just it's amazing how big that controls. No one should have to make that kind of you you shouldn't have to game out your health care. Right. You know, years in advance like that. No one should ever have to do that. So yeah, I'm I'm off my soapbox now, but I had to get that in there since medical care is such a, a big driver of you know bankruptcies and, and financial ruin for people. I can't even go to next door when, when I see a headline that has to do with homelessness. It's mm-hmm. just I, I already know before I go and click the button that it's gonna be infuriating. And I went to the last one, it's like, it's almost like a train wreck where I can't look away. And it's exactly what you would think, you know, yeah, there's some people that are just like, man, where's your compassion? And then there's all these people saying just like horrendous stuff, making jokes, treating it really horribly. Yeah. And I saw one where somebody posted this rant and they were saying, I struggle and I'm worried about being able to keep my house here in Austin. Housing is so expensive and I work really hard and I, you know, I'm anxious about it and I'm stressed and I'm doing all this stuff, just trying to keep myself and my family housed. Why should we be giving housing to these people for free? Why are they so much more valuable than someone like me? And I posted and I responded to that. And I said, it's not about value. It's about need. I said, if you had two children and one of them is having vision issues and you buy them a pair of glasses, does that mean you value that child more? No, it's, it's that the one child needs glasses, has, has an impairment here, has a problem that they need help with. The other child doesn't need that help. 
And never mind the fact that those people who are currently homeless through no fault of their own that need this, you know, long-term housing support, maybe they were that person who's wondering how they're going to pay their mortgage and trying to do everything right. Maybe they yeah, were that. Exactly. So, yeah. They're just okay. like you. They're, they're just, so many people are just like you. And yeah. I can't stress that enough. That That's one of the reasons I won't join next door because I just have no patience for the kind of stuff I've seen on, and I've, I've not joined it, but I, I'm part of some Facebook groups where people talk about what goes on on next door. And it's like, Oh, I, I could not do that. Although I do want to know which of my neighbors is blue lives matter, Nazi cop supporting whatever. When I go to next door it, with the, with the camping ban specifically, I was really disappointed because I really just thought it's my neighborhood, right? Like my neighborhood are the assholes and it's because I'm in North Austin and they're just, you know, haughty people that are really too hung up on their, you know, on appearances. And I, I, I didn't expect the ban to actually go through. I went and voted against it, but I really thought once people voted down, you know, then we can get to work because this will be decided. And all these people saying, you're not doing what the people want can just shut up and we'll show them what the people really want. And then the ban went through and I was like, wow. So the city really is just assholes, right? Like this city is majority asshole and not liberal and not compassionate and not humanitarian. I, I just don't know what to say to a city that after a horrible, horrible, freezing, deadly winter can tell homeless people you aren't allowed to have a shelter. Well, and, you know, getting back to things our Texas Ledge has done, the fact that this whole regulating the power grid and doing something that would actually help with such low-hanging fruit, it's like winter 2021 teed this up for the Texas ledge like nothing else. They could have done something really good for all of Texas by imposing some regulations on the, you know, the power suppliers. Instead, they decided that their best course of action would be to regulate abortion again and pass some unneeded voting rights restrictions. And gosh, what other, oh, the constitutional carry thing. It is such a useless body in terms of getting anything done for people. It's just about making money for their buddies, right? And and this yeah. is the, the uh, we're on, for people that don't know this, that are outside Texas, Texas is on its own grid. For whatever reason, we have decided as a state not to be hooked up to the national power grid. We are our own grid and it sucks. We found out over winter why that's a bad idea and why it's really good to be like part of the larger system. And additionally, one of the arguments that was used to put us on this independent grid was that it was going to save everybody money. It would save consumers money. It hasn't. We pay more than people outside of Texas pay for power. So we're paying more for service that isn't as good. And somehow our legislators are just like going to let that slide because even after a deadly 
wild winter where the whole grid failed, they aren't concerned enough to really do anything about it except performative garbage. And I'm not convinced that the people living here are going to make them do anything. After I'm seeing these votes, like I see these people on next door and I'm like, wow, what a bunch of conservative asshats. And then they go to the polls and they show me that they're in the majority, at least the majority of people that are concerned enough to get out and vote. I don't know what to say to the fact that I live in that community. Yeah, I I don't even know what to say either. I mean, in the aftermath of Texans dying of hypothermia in the middle of that cold spell, because there was no electricity and no, everybody's like, oh, but you know, all the gas heat, the gas furnace in most people's houses, it actually requires electricity because there's a computer card that controls that and they have pilotless heaters. Same thing, you know, with my oven, we could light the burners on the stove. Yeah. Manually. Yeah. Right. Which is incredibly dangerous because carbon monoxide is a thing. We couldn't light the oven because the oven requires the gas valve on the oven has like this electrical interlock. And if there's no- an ignition, it, it, it has an igniter. Yeah. And, and even if you, you know, tried to manually light it, the gas doesn't flow. That little electrical interlock on the gas valve shuts off the gas flow if there's no electricity. Yeah, for safety. Be- yeah, for safety. And so all of this gas stuff. It doesn't actually help, but it makes a lot of money for the oil and gas companies and the power providers. You know, there's a lot of uh, Republicans who are saying, oh, but, you know, the wind turbines stopped turning and everything. It's like, well, yeah, some of them did. But that doesn't supply the majority of our power. The gas power plants were offline because the gas lines literally froze. They could not deliver gas to the furnace to keep the power plants going. And and nobody in Texas, in the Texas ledge, or at least no Republican, wants to regulate that and require that they have heating elements on those supply lines to make sure that the gas supply lines don't freeze. Like how hard it would it be to say, like, you know what, these are the problems we had during this la- the winter storm Yuri was the, win- the name of the winter storm that came through. And we experienced huge issues people with busted pipes because they couldn't they no longer could heat their homes because of lost electricity and then we look at the electric providers and these are the issues we're finding we you know we had some wind turbines that got frozen in place because unlike other states that have regulations such as having heating elements on their wind turbines we don't have that here so what we're going to do is as a state to maintain our electricity independence, we're going to create a small fund whereby everyone that has wind turbines are required to put heating elements and can apply for a subsidy from the state to get this taken care of. I mean, you could wrap it all into your independence, you know, Republican talking points. You could do all the low hanging fruit that you want to so that your base would be content with all of that. But none of that was the focus at all, just these performative BS things that they're putting out, trying to whip up their base and everything else. And it's just like, how hard would that have been to say, hey, let's put some heating elements up there. We know we got your back. On, we, you got to pay for some of it, but we got your back as a state. I guess the thing to me, though, is when you're sitting in your living room, freezing your ass off for a week and a half, at no point do these people think, huh, regulation might be a good thing. 
Maybe we should require them to weatherize the wind turbines. Maybe we should be, you know, weatherizing some of this other stuff so that I'm not sitting here in my house that's 40 degrees, you know, like melting snow to flush my toilet. Well, and not only that, but all you had to do was take a look at a map of Texas and overlay on that map of Texas a map of all of the power outages throughout Texas where the grid basically was down because of the storm. And if you look around the edges, there are counties that are not on the Texas grid along New Mexico, for example, around the panhandle and and everything. You look at those counties that are not on the Texas grid, they had power. Power never went out. They were experiencing the same winter storm as the, the people that were 100 yards away that were on the Texas grid, but they had power. The people on the Texas grid did not. The, the grid that they were on was regulated, required to winterize. Texas grid was not. People were coming up for bottled water for weeks after winter storm Yuri. And I volunteered out there multiple times. San, the city of San Antonio and Bear County bought up almost every packet of bottled water that you could ever find. Yeah. And we're distributing it because so many people were without water because they had busted pipes and couldn't afford to do anything about it. Or were waiting on landlords to actually, you know, get all of that together. Otherwise, they had no safe drinking water inside their homes. And this was even after they started, you know, letting people drink the water again because they it was that uh, boiling <laughs> notice and everything on. And so we were out there for weeks, literal weeks, handing out bottled water, families of car. And when I say the line did not stop for like my four or five hour shift, whatever that shift was, like the whole time, cars rolling yeah. in, rolling in. We had helicopters, I'm assuming like news helicopters, I guess, getting footage of the line that was sprawling out day after day. Like I went on a Monday, I went on a Thursday, I think on Friday, two and some other days in between. It didn't matter the day. Lines of cars every single time. Like there was no breakage. It was just here comes another car and the line gets empty. Oh, no, here comes more cars now. Like It was just a constant thing. And to hear nothing about the changes to the regulation that caused this massive issue in so many people's lives and people that are still dealing with that now, still trying to get repairs done and everything else, who are our representatives actually representing? Like, what the hell do y'all care about if not all these constituents that were had to go through that and you have nothing to say about it? Like, you don't want to do anything to make sure that doesn't happen again it's not important to you. Like, what is the deal? Do they not give you enough money, perhaps? Like, or do they not have a large enough checkbook in order for you to care about these problems? What the heck is the, your issue when these are supposed to be your people that you're representing? Supposed to be. Yeah, I remember the whole water issue. That was actually toward the end of that week. You know, we were kind of adapting to the rolling blackouts, you know, where we would have several hours of, you know, no power, no heat or anything. And then, you know, the power would come on for, we didn't know how long, but for a period of time, we'd have heat. And, you know, so we would, if we needed to use the oven, we would cook something. We had actually taken everything out of our freezer and put it outside because uh-huh. the stuff in the freezer was actually starting to thaw. So we stuck it outside because it's minus three degrees out there. There were periods of time where I was sitting in the car charging cell phones and computers so that we would at least have, you know, the ability to keep working or do something on the cell phone, communicate. And then toward the end of the week, when 
we lost water pressure because people were dripping their water. And because of the power outages, the pumps couldn't pump enough water into the water towers. The water level was very low. And so they were asking people, stop dripping your pot, your water. And we know that you're at risk of freezing. And yeah, it was, it was like a catch 22. Then toward the end of the week, when some of my neighbors did have burst pipes, didn't have drinking water, we still did. And I was like boiling water for them, taking them boiled water to supplement whatever they could get. You know, this is supposed to be a developed country here. <laughs> and what the hell is going on? We lived less primitively in the middle of the desert during combat operations. I was literally making candles. Like I have candle making supplies. So I was literally making candles and melting snow, filling the bathtub with melted snow so we could flush the toilets, making candles so that we could put them out in the garage near the walls to where we would keep the pipes warm. I happened to just on a fluky thing about me, I have oil lamps because I like them like the antique oil lamps. And so we kept those burning as much as we could. We had a little propane uh, heater that we used until the propane was gone. We got a couple of rolling blackouts and then at some point the power went out and it just never came back on. And we were just like, okay, well, at least we got the water. And then at some point the water went out. It just never came back on. I remember it was like uh, I was doing something, filling a pot or something like that. And I remember the water pressure started to, to go. And I thought, oh, the pipes are freezing. And my roommate was just like, no, I don't think it's the pipes freezing. I think it's, I think it's something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turned out that it was. It was like the, the actual water everywhere. It wasn't just us. It wasn't our pipes frozen. So we did manage to avoid any kind of pipe breakage by keeping the pipes you know, heated out in the garage, but it also meant keeping the garage door open, like not my big garage door, but the garage, uh, the door between the garage and the house. Um, I had to keep that open because we didn't want the pipes out there. We've got our laundry out there and stuff. So we didn't want the pipes that ran through the garage to get to freeze. Mm-hmm. But that meant that we had to keep the house cold because we couldn't, we had to keep that door between the house and the garage open to keep the heat going in there. And so we, I had the fireplace going the whole time. We'd have a gas fireplace and I had that going the entire time. And I was had the uh, fold-out futon on the floor in front of the fireplace. And I was just sleeping there piled on with cats because they were all just like body heat, right? Yeah. So they're jumping like in bed with me and I've got the fireplace going and I, I just slept in the living room the whole time. And we closed off, you know, the rooms that we weren't using that didn't have water, like obviously keep the bathrooms open um, because you want those to get heated as much as possible. But that little, basically what amounts to a decorative fireplace was the heating everything that and then the burners on the stove, we had those going too the whole time. Yeah, we we were running the burners on the stove and then we wanted to cook food. We were either cooking it in a, a pot on the stove or using the, the burners as the equivalent of a campfire and toasting things over the open flame. Yeah, I could cook, so. but I couldn't wash any dishes. And that was painful because there wasn't, you know, there no clean water to wash a dish. You couldn't rinse. It, it's like really hard to wash your dishes when you don't have running water. Not that I haven't done it. I've done it camping before, but it's not optimal. 
we, I remember like wiping as much food as I could out of a pot or something and then getting some snow and melting the snow in the pot to get some water. Try to rinse it out. Yeah. And I have thermal sleeping bags. So I was, I was, I went and pulled those out and gave one to my roommate. And I was just like, Hey, I've got, you know, the thermal sleeping bags. And so I used one in the living room and they used one in their bedroom and said, they actually said that in the middle of the night, they had to take it off because they were sweating. Yeah. You know, I felt lucky to be as capable of seeing things through as I did. And I felt lucky, too, that my, you know, my roommate stayed around and and really helped set things up to kind of get it going, you know, to where everything was set up and everything was good and it was running. And his mother doesn't live that far away and things were good at her house. And I said, you know, you've been working hard. You've been like up all night. Why don't you why don't you go to your mom's? And I'm cool here. I'll just stay with the cats because I don't want to leave the cats in case something happens. I don't want I don't want anything to go wrong here. We got some open flames happening and I just don't want to leave that. I don't want to turn it off because I'm not going to leave the cats with no heat. And I don't want to leave the house unattended while we've got the fireplace going, burners going, you know, the candles going in the other room. I'm like, that's not safe at all. I go, so somebody's got to stay here and there's no reason. It's my house. So there's no reason you should be stuck here. Like, why don't you, so you go stay with your mom and get a hot shower, get some sleep. I'll just stay here and and deal with the house. Yeah, we were embarrassingly unscathed by that side of dealing with power and water outages. Nothing like what a lot of people had to endure. I'm so glad my pipes didn't burst. That would have been the worst. We're a little bit past the hour here. That was a big potpourri of topics. And then I get to edit this down. (laughs) (laughs) But it was really good talking to y'all. It was great catching up. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, always, always. All vaccinated. We got our superpowers. Yeah. <laughs> all the 5G all 5G chips are have been activated. Yeah. We are we are good. <laughs> thank you, Jen, and thank you, Phil. I appreciate you being on the call. I'm sure, like I said, people are gonna love it. They love when you guys are on. Thanks for having us. Yeah. It's always a fun time and you never know where it's gonna go. Like I, I love that about it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks. All right. Thanks, guys. Okay. All right. Take care. Good night. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening. And as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.